Welcome to the Dark Whales Tours podcast with me, Matthew Rose. Many of us often wonder what it would be like to live in a haunted house. Would we be scared? Would we try to find rational explanations? Would we become accustomed to it? Most of us, however, will never know what it's like to settle down in the comfort of a family home only to find out you are not alone there. Former occupants have not moved on and continue to disturb your peaceful family home. On this episode, we will be looking at a building in Cardiff that has had numerous reports of paranormal activity. We will also be looking at the experiences of a former inhabitant of this building, Mr. Andrew Dexter. Mr. Dexter contacted us here at Dark Whales Tours to tell us about his experience growing up in Gladstone Villa. Wanting to get his story heard by as many people as possible, he asked us to share his experiences of his former home and to tell his story. This episode is therefore dedicated to Andrew Dexter and all the stories of his experiences are true accounts from his own admission as to what he and members of his family experienced while living in Gladstone Villa. Between the years 1969 and 1978, Andrew, his parents and his grandparents all experienced paranormal activity within their home. Built in 1900, Gladstone Villa, it is said, was named after the former Prime Minister William Gladstone. The house was built on land that was close to a ruined monastery and would have once been part of the monastery's land. One of the first families to live there was the Kimiet family. Newlyweds Michael and Evelyn moved to Gladstone Villa and shortly afterwards, in 1924, Evelyn gave birth to a son, Elvin. However, tragedy struck when, sadly, Elvin died in the house at just four months old. Evelyn was devastated. She spent the rest of her life in mourning for the loss of her baby. Evelyn died in 1970, the same year that Andrew Dexter was born. Michael and Evelyn moved out of Gladstone Villa in the 1940s, when the Williams family moved in. In the 1950s, the Mills family occupied the property, and finally, in the 1960s, Andrew Dexter's mother's family moved in. All seemed quiet in the house. The family settled in, and the paranormal was far from their minds. All this, however, changed around the time Andrew was born. From 1969 to the summer of 1978, family, friends and Andrew himself experienced phenomena that in his own words simply defied rational explanation and scientific logic. This included poltergeist activity, like lights turning on and off by themselves. The family even witnessed electrical cables being pulled by unseen forces and there was the occasional sighting of spectral figures standing and roaming the house. The paranormal occurrences seemed to have started with the family shortly after Andrew was born. It started off rather quietly, small tapping sounds here and there, but nothing too obvious. 
but as more time went by, the activity gradually increased. On one occasion, the whole family heard a noise. They described it as the sound of someone jumping down from the attic and onto the landing. Naturally, they thought that somebody was trying to break in, so they went to investigate. When they got there, they found nobody in sight, but the hatch to the attic was open. The family looked around the house, but found no intruder. Whatever it was, it soon began to make its presence felt more and more, including by walking around the main bedroom, which was Andrew's grandparents' bedroom. The family reported that they could constantly hear the sounds of something being dragged across the floor of the bedroom when nobody was in that particular room. It was not, however, just in the grandparents' bedroom where strange things happened to the family. One day, Andrew's mother went upstairs to get his father up for work so he could get ready for his night shift. When she got there, she was confronted by the sight of the ironing board resting on Andrew's father as he slept. When he awoke, he was astonished to find the ironing board covering him. He immediately suspected that his father-in-law was playing tricks on him. He confronted his father-in-law, of course, who denied any knowledge of it. Andrew's father left for work, where he told his work friends what had happened. He also told them of the other strange occurrences that have been happening within the house, and it slowly got around the town that Gladstone Villa was indeed haunted. As Andrew got older, he too experienced some paranormal activity, including witnessing more electrical cables being pulled by unseen forces when he was alone in the room. He also reported seeing the lights turning off and on seemingly by themselves, but it was not just the lights that were affected. On Sundays, when the family ate dinner together, Andrew's grandfather would play music on the record player. The spirits of the house, however, did not seem to like this as the record player would often switch itself off and malfunction with no obvious reason. Andrew remembers that strangely the spirits seemed to take exception to certain music. Similarly, the TV would also inexplicably switch itself off whenever Andrew's grandmother would watch any religious shows, but it would work perfectly fine at other times. As news of what the family were experiencing spread around the town, family friends would often ask to come to the house to see if they too could experience it themselves and hopefully try to provide a rational explanation. One such friend was Mrs. Ivy France, who was very skeptical when Andrew's grandmother told her that Gladstone Villa was haunted. One particular day, Ivy went into the main bedroom and after looking around she decided that the disturbances were being caused by the vibration from the traffic outside. However, she soon changed her mind when she experienced it for herself. It was then she suggested the family should contact a medium and the local press to see if they could gain some answers. 
the medium the family found was a man called John Matthews. He started by asking the family questions about their experiences. He then turned his attention to the spirits and he began by challenging them to show themselves or make themselves known. He did this by knocking on the ceiling and asking for a reply and sure enough there was a response in the form of a knocking coming back at him. At some point in the investigation Andrew remembers John going into a trance to try and make contact with the spirits that seemed to inhabit the house but he failed to get any names. He later confirmed that there was indeed a presence there and it was an earthbound spirit with some unidentified and unfinished business. After this investigation the family decided to get a priest to bless the house and drive out these unwanted spirits so a priest by the name of Graham Jones was called to Gladstone Villa. He blessed the property and after a few prayers he duly left saying that his work was done. All was quiet with Gladstone Villa for a few short months after that. However the disturbances did indeed return with a vengeance it seems and this time it decided whatever it was to show itself. One night the family were watching TV in the living room when Andrew's mother caught sight of a figure out of the corner of her eye. The figure was stood in the doorway and was wearing what she described as a brown monk's robe. Andrew's mother then said that the figure suddenly disappeared. The family themselves however were not the only ones who experienced things inside Gladstone Villa. Fred Davis was a friend of Andrew's grandfather. They worked together at the local colliery and he would often visit most evenings. He would sit in the chair by the open fire and talk to the family and watch TV with them. One day Fred was with the family sitting watching the television as normal. It was mostly quiet as the family were focusing on the TV and Andrew was playing with his toys. All of a sudden there was an almighty bang that came from directly above them. It was so loud that Fred actually ducked his head and poor Andrew ran to his mother for comfort as it frightened him so much. When the family had calmed down they all went upstairs to investigate. Andrew's grandfather went first with little Andrew at the back. When they got to the bedroom where the noise had come from they found nothing that could account for such a noise. Fred later revealed that he ducked his head as he thought whatever it was he was going to come through the ceiling. This wasn't the only thing Fred experienced at Gladstone Villa. One evening when he and Andrew's grandfather were looking out of the landing window that overlooked Cardiff Road and into Bargoyd Town Centre he said he felt something brush past him. When he looked there was nothing there. The activity got so bad that Andrew's grandmother, mother and Andrew himself slept downstairs with the lights on. It was only Andrew's grandfather Bill who was supposedly brave enough to sleep upstairs. It was then that he himself had yet another experience in the bedroom while he was alone. 
He was lying on the bed when all of a sudden he couldn't move. He couldn't even shout out to his family to come and help him. This is the very description of a condition that is recognized by science called sleep paralysis. We have mentioned this condition in a previous episode. Sleep paralysis is a feeling of being conscious but unable to move. It occurs when a person passes between stages of wakefulness and sleep. During these transitions, you may be unable to move or speak for a few seconds, up to a few minutes even. Some people may also feel pressure or a sense of choking. In this state, people often report seeing ghostly figures and sometimes monsters and even demons before they fully wake up. Andrew's grandfather said that while he was stuck in this state, he could see the figure of a monk moving around the room. Andrew's grandmother also experienced things within her bedroom. One particular day, she went upstairs to get Andrew's grandfather when she saw the door to the boiler slowly and methodically opening all by itself. Suffice to say, she did not stay there long to see what it was, instead rushing as fast as she could out of the room. The family experienced so much paranormal disturbance that Andrew's grandmother gave the ghost a name. She actually called him Johnny, which Andrew's grandfather would shout to try to provoke a reaction from the spirit, but nothing would happen. Maybe, of course, the spirit was unaware of the name it had been given by the family it was trying to torment. The most frightening experience Andrew had was when he was alone in the main bedroom. He made sure the light was on just in case. He also noticed it was very quiet. He was lying on the bed facing the window when he suddenly felt something heavy pounce on the bottom of the bed. He heard the bed springs compress and felt the mattress indent. Andrew was understandably scared and he didn't look straight away, but when he plucked up enough courage to look, he saw there was nothing there. He rushed downstairs to tell the family what he had just experienced, and they all quickly went upstairs to check the room. What they found sent a shiver down their spines, as on the bed they could clearly see distinctive paw prints of a dog. The family did not have any dogs, but before Andrew was born, his grandparents did indeed own a black Labrador called Tovey, who had died just before Andrew's birth. The family left Gladstone Villa in 1978, when two local businessmen bought the property and Gladstone Villa was eventually converted into a small hotel and had its name changed to Reds Park Hotel. On the night before Andrew's family moved, there was one final incident they experienced, almost as if the spirits knew that they were leaving and it was its way of saying goodbye. Andrew, his mother and grandmother were getting ready to go to sleep. The light was still on and they heard the doorknob turning, as if someone was trying to get in. At first they naturally suspected Andrew's grandfather as he was the only one who slept upstairs. Andrew called out to him, but there was no answer. They then heard banging and crashing in the hallway where their packed up belongings were being stored ready for moving the next morning. The next day they checked the hallway and there were no signs of any disturbances. 
they asked Andrew's grandfather if it was him playing a joke on them all. However, he insisted that it was nothing to do with him. Since the family left, the bar staff and hotel workers have reported hearing similar noises and seeing phantom figures throughout the property. So it seems that Gladstone Villa is still the home of its former inhabitants who have refused to move out. Andrew himself speculates that maybe Evelyn Kimiet's ghost, still in mourning for her own son, actually mistook Andrew as her own baby and that is why the disturbances started soon after Andrew was born. Or could the disturbances and hauntings in fact be linked to the once nearby monastery, with the family seeing, as previously mentioned, figures draped in brown robes? Gladstone Villa is not the only family home that has been reported as being haunted in Britain. Many of us naturally have an innate interest in stories of haunted houses. The true believers enjoy hearing tales of the terrifying exploits of these unseen forces, and the most sceptical would prefer to try to rationalise and to find reasonable explanations for such things. This is often the case when you hear tales of ghosts and hauntings all over the world, not just, of course, in Wales. One such case that split the nation's opinion in terms of scepticism and the paranormal came from Enfield in London, which came to the attention of the Society of Psychical Research and also famed American paranormal investigators and self-proclaimed demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren. In August 1977, single parent Peggy Hodgson called the police to her rented home at 284 Green Street in Enfield, claiming she had witnessed furniture moving and that two of her four children, Margaret, aged 13, and Janet, aged 11, said that knocking sounds were heard on the walls. The police constable that attended the scene said that she saw a chair wobble and slide, but could not determine the cause of the movement. As not much could be done, the police wrote a report and filed it away. In the next few months, the family claimed to hear disembodied voices and loud noises coming from empty rooms. They said they saw toys being thrown down the hallway when nobody was there, chairs overturned by themselves, and most remarkable of all, they reported that the children would levitate, being held up by unseen forces. Over a period of 18 months, more than 30 people, including neighbours, psychic researchers, journalists, all said that they saw heavy furniture moving of its own accord. Objects were thrown across the room and the daughters seeming to levitate several feet off the ground. Many also heard and recorded knocking sounds and a sound of a gruff voice. The story was covered in the British newspaper, The Daily Mirror, until reports came to an end in 1979. The reports were so unbelievable that the Society of Psychical Research sent two researchers to investigate the house. 
the investigators reported that there were strange whistling and barking noises coming from Janet's direction, and it was indeed at least one entity within the seemingly normal-looking house. They did add, however, that some of the occurrences were probably exaggerated or made up entirely by the girls for the attention of the media. In 1978, Ed and Lorraine Warren came to Britain to investigate the Enfield haunting. They concluded that there was a spirit disturbing the family and that a demon had possessed one of the daughters. The Warrens have been made famous in recent years due to The Conjuring and the Annabelle film franchise, which are based on their investigations in various locations. The Conjuring 2 is loosely based on the Enfield haunting. When talking about haunted houses, and also Ed and Lorraine Warren, it would be remiss of us not to mention one of the most famous cases in the world. Although not directly linked to Wales in any way, this site has captured the imagination worldwide and deserves a mention here. Because Ed and Lorraine Warren were actually some of the first investigators to report on the infamous Amityville House hauntings. The Amityville House was the site of a horrific murder where Ronald Defoe Jr. shot and killed his father, mother, two sisters and two brothers in the middle of the night of November the 13th, 1974. In his trial, Ronald claimed to have acted after he had heard voices plotting against him and once he started, he couldn't stop. The idea of hearing voices led to the theory that maybe there was more to the Amityville house than first thought. Ronald was convicted and sentenced to a life imprisonment, and as of the date of recording, he's still being held in the Sullivan Correctional Facility in New York, and all of his appeals and requests to the parole board have been denied. In December 1975, Kathy and George Lutz and their three children moved into the Amityville house where the murders had occurred, 112 Ocean Avenue. 28 days later, the Lutz fled in the middle of the night, leaving most of their belongings in the house. They claimed they had been chased away by evil spirits and demons that had taken up residence in the house. George and Kathy Lutz made their experiences public and on March 6th, 1976, Ed and Lorraine Warren, accompanied by crew from the television station Channel 5 New York and reporter Michael Linder, spent the night inside the house to determine what had scared the Lutz family away. During this investigation, several photographs were taken. When these were developed, the Warrens were shocked to discover in one of them the clear image of a young, unidentified boy peering from a doorway into the hallway. This photograph was shown around the world by George Lutz, just in time for the first of many films to be released which featured the Amityville house hauntings. There have been, of course, many skeptics and critics of the Amityville case. Theories ranging from the Lutzes wanting the money from publicity to George actually striking a deal with Ronald to cast doubt that he was in control of his actions the night he murdered his family, and to make people try to believe it was because of the evil spirits within the house 
he wouldn't be the first or the last murderer to claim that the devil had told him to do it. It should be noted that since the Lutz left the house, several families have lived at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville and all of them categorically say there is nothing evil about the house and none of them have been disturbed by anything other than paranormal investigators and horror film fans. When someone says haunted house, we normally like to imagine a crumbling manor house with roaming ivy growing up the walls and creepy paintings of long dead owners peering at you from the darkness. When a haunting, however, comes along that is based on a normal everyday house as we have seen with Gladstone Villa, it usually fascinates us and also even scares us more. It brings the horrors and ghosts of a classic Victorian ghost story closer to home. Wales is full of haunted buildings, as we have seen throughout the previous episodes of our podcast. However, ghosts do not just inhabit old ruined castles like Gwyrch Castle or run-down hospitals like the Cardiff Royal Infirmary. They are not only unique to isolated farmhouses like Scare House, they can also, as you have seen, haunt normal-looking family homes. Gladstone Villa was a typical family home that from the outside did not look any different from the houses around it. However, for some reason, its former inhabitants have refused to leave, even after death. It does make you think what horrors are going on behind closed doors that we are not aware of. What terrifying ordeals people may have endured that are not in the public's consciousness, which have not been popularised by books and movies. What would you do? How would you feel upon discovering you and your family are not alone in the house? If you have your own story to share on this or any of the other topics in our podcasts, then please email us on darkwales at hotmail.com just like Mr. Andrew Dexter did. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Dark Wales Tours podcast, and a very special thank you to Mr. Andrew Dexter for contacting us and telling us his story. Please be sure to share and like this episode, and visit us on www.darkwalestours.co.uk. Please also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and be sure to listen to the other episodes of this podcast, with new episodes being released every two weeks. Until next time, Dior and Vowell, thank you very much. The Dark Wales Tours podcast is produced and delivered by Matthew Rose and Luke Alcock, owners of Dark Wales Tours.